0: so there's this guy he's in the cab and he says uh, so what you doing and we talk he says you know you're very smart you're not going to be a cab driver all your life i can tell you you're in go place but going to give you a little piece of advice i said whoa thank you so much sir because i'm thinking hey i must be nice you know he's going to give me a tip i'm not arguing with the guy sure whatever recommendation you got it will be warmly accepted right and then he says okay I'm going to give you double the, the right, it's $20 to the airport, I'm going to make it 40
1: On this episode of Latinx, I speak with former Democratic congressman Luis Gutierrez. You may have already heard about him on Latinx Debate, our limited political series gearing up toward elections. Now that elections are somewhat over, I wanted to get to know more about Luis outside of the debate. We talk about his journey from his cab-driving days all the way to the White House and about his advice for young, aspiring politicians. Hola, yo soy Andrea Márquez, and this is Latinx, a show brought to you by La Red Hispana and the Hispanic Communications Network for the new generation of Latinx. We want to go beyond listening. We're ready to speak up. So join me in conversation every week as I meet Latinx from all over, the diferentes colores y sabores. As you know, a podcast is a journey, and I would love for you to follow this one. So join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinx and reach out. You can also find out more at our website at weareladinex.com. I was born December
0: 10th, 1953. So separate but equal was the law of the land, and it was legal to discriminate. Um, I remember uh, swimming pools we shouldn't go to or couldn't go to. Somewhere shouldn't go to because you knew better, because you'd be a victim of violence for going to that swimming pool. So structurally, racism had both the enforcement of the law and the enforcement of violence that would be... uh, Um, that you would be attacked with if you moved into certain neighborhoods. So I learned in the city of Chicago. So all this great thing. So I, it was interesting. It wasn't until I got to Puerto Rico at the age of 15 that somebody finally called me an Americano because I swear to you from the day I was born to the day I left Chicago when I was uh, out of my freshman year of high school, I was always Puerto Rican. Right. There he is. He's Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican. I don't have any problem with that. But that's how society and the superstructure, the educational system, the police system. Right. The news media. Um, they find me. I was good with that. Uh, of course, I wasn't good with the spick part. Uh, it, it was because I grew up with a lot of Mexicans. Uh, you know, Chicago is a very diverse community of Latinos. People might not know that, uh, but people think of LA and they think of obviously of Texas. Um, they should think of Chicago. Chicago is like today one million strong. Uh, the Greater Chicago Metropolitan Area of people of Mexican and Mexican descent that live in the city of Chicago. Puerto Ricans, dwindling numbers. Uh, there were a lot of us to begin with but dwindling numbers as we leave the city of Chicago, get old, and there are no new uh, migrants from Puerto Rico coming. Um, so, so I remember uh, Tortilla Face, because they would, you know, Americanos, they don't distinguish between Puerto Ricans and Mexicans, so, so you know. <laughs> I remember all of those things. And then I got to Puerto Rico, I was 15 years old, and it was like the first moment I opened up my mouth, it was like, ay, mira, un Americano, el es gringo, el no es de aquí. I'm like, really? (laughs) I just came from a society that made sure that they told me I wasn't from there either. Um, What are the things you confront? And I say this with, I know, a little laughter and joy, but sometimes you look back at these experiences and you've grown and matured from them, but it is like a rite of passage to be Puerto Rican and to be told to go back where you came from. And so, you know, all this thing of, oh well, Puerto Ricans are citizens and they've been citizens for generations. Well then why do I why do Puerto Ricans keep getting told to go back where you came from? Because society doesn't see us that way. So that was the society that my parents confronted. And I'll end with this, Andrea. So if you were in New York and it was 1951, 1952, the politicians would be talking about how we stop the wave of puerto ricans coming to new york bringing disease bringing uh um crime bringing uh the need for more uh welfare because they all want to be on welfare Mm -hmm. this really this conversation actually happened in the news media in new york city which was the place where most puerto ricans arrived at obviously west side story and and the play uh so Andrea, that's kind of where I begin. And that should give you an indication of my future, right? And things that I would be involved in. And because it, I, it's, it's, unless you're 66 and lived through the 50, you don't get it. Because you might have lived a different life. Of course, it's coming, it seems like it's full circle and coming back.
1: So there's, um, there's this feeling of ni de aquí ni de allá, right? Like,
0: right. Very good.
1: somewhere in between.
0: Right. Ni de aquí, ni de allá. No soy de Estados Unidos. And I'm not from Puerto Rico. Um, although I've overcome that, obviously, once you arrive. Because Puerto Rico is a Latin American country. Mm-hmm. And you see it in the structure of the society. So it won't be much different than Mexico City, San Juan. Or any other major metropolitan city in Latin America, where race is certainly an issue, but what is even more prevalent and defines you is your socioeconomic status. Huh? We're gonna go to Mexico City, we would go to the de Rotario, right. los mexicanos que tienen dinero. Igual que Puerto Rico. And the society is structured that way, right? between those that have and those that don't. So in 1970, so I was, since I was born in 1953, the 1972 elections were the first elections you could be 18. Before 1972, you had to be 21 to vote. So here I was, 18 years old, ready to vote. Of course, I joined the Puerto Rican Independence Party. What was the theme? Arriba los de abajo y abajo los de arriba. It's, We hear it again, you know, expressed differently in terms of our fight for um, uh, uh, income, the fight against income inequality, Mm -hmm. right? Has some of those uh, um, tinges, right, uh, of that campaign. So in that sense of society, so I just want to share with you that when I got to Puerto Rico, not only could I not speak Spanish, Because my mom and dad didn't feel it was necessary to teach us Spanish. Although it was their lifelong dream to return to Puerto Rico, you would have thought my dad would have said, yeah, you might want to prepare for when we return to Puerto Rico. So I always had this, it was like background noise, right? Vamos a regresar a la patria. Esta no es mi tierra. Vamos a seguir orando. And I kept going, okay, it's my parents' pipe dream right it's never really going to happen because i never saw anybody do it so i never saw anybody do it so in the absence of any specific experience and then they did it i always understood race ethnicity what i didn't get was social class so when i get to puerto rico it becomes clearly and apparent to me that there's a new obstacle and it's not the color of my skin or how, you know, or my, or or my curly hair anymore. Right. Or being Puerto Rican or all of these things. It's that I'm poor. (laughs) My father owns a restaurant. I wash the dishes. I peel the potatoes every night for the next day. You know, I'm a kitchen worker. And so, And it shows you, I still remember, there was this young girl, I don't know what she was thinking, it's high school, and she comes to me and says, hola Luis, (laughs) would you like to go to me, uh, to to the party at the Rotary Club? I was like, wow, maybe I am breaking through this socioeconomic thing, because this girl's parents belong to the Rotary Club and I'm washing dishes and peeling potatoes every day, and she still invited me. So I went to my dad. Just to show you how pervasive it is, I went to my dad, and I said, Papi, este, mira, esta muchacha me invitó. And he looked at me, and he's, he, I still remember, he says, Tú eres loco. Tú no puedes ir a esa cosa. Eso no es para ti. ¿Quién te va a pagar la etiqueta de tuxedo? ¿Quién te va a pagar las flores? Eso cuesta dinero. Dile a esa muchacha que tú no puedes ir. So even my dad, structurally, right? In his mind, "Eh, you ain't going to that, That, that's not for you. You're some poor ass kid who washes dishes and peeled potatoes and don't get your illusions up too high. So, you know, or maybe he was protecting me. He's not around to explain it anymore. And I didn't ask because you can imagine as a 16 year old kid, I was like, shit, man, I really wanted to go to that party and break through.
1: Why did you choose public office?
0: Right. So when I'm 17, you can imagine you're an adolescent, and I used because I was always learning Spanish then, Andrea, right, and trying to figure out how words were formed so that I could at least you know survive in a a Spanish American in a Spanish-speaking country. And I used to always think that adolescencia was la ciencia del dolor. It isn't. Just so you know. It isn't, but I did. I said because you put dolor y ciencia. Tiene que ser la ciencia. Ooh, del
1: Oh, wow! Well, I've never heard that before. And that's really, yeah,
0: but in I my mind, <laughs> yes. me, when I looked up the word adolescencia, I should be a posaguro. Pues, tiene que ser la ciencia del dolor, yeah. porque eso es todo lo que yo sentía dolor dolor de rechazo, dolor de no tener una novia dolor de la ciencia de mi amigo, de la música que me gustaba, de ser aceptado, mm-hmm. o sea todo ese dolor que viene con rechazo en mi adolescencia el dolor de sentir como tú dijiste, ni de aquí ni de allá y confundido and it wasn't my fault i was a product of colonialism in puerto rico and one million puerto ricans they didn't just flee the island of puerto rico during the 1950s it was organized orchestrated by the government of puerto rico that they would leave this mass migration so I I, I say that to you to say the one group that accepted me were the independentistas, those that believed in independence for Puerto Rico. I know it's going to sound like so ironic to your listeners, right? You mean el gringo is being adopted and accepted by the separatists, the nationalists, those that advocate for independence and raise the language and the culture and the values? Yeah because they understood colonialism and they understood that I didn't, my parents and I didn't just wake up one day and say bye Puerto Rico we're leaving to a better life somewhere else. That I had returned, that I was part of the diaspora, right? And that Puerto Ricans as um, our, our great Puerto Rican um, poet, Juan Antonio Correahead wrote, yo sería boricua aunque naciera la luna. Why? Because there's this sense, right, of community and who we are independent of where we might be geographically. Um, And so I joined the party. It was so educational to me, reading, learning about the culture, uh, listening to poets and artists and all of those wonderful intelligentsia of Puerto Rico. And all of them saying, yes, you are one of us. And we're going to help you learn how to speak. Spanish, and but we're gonna also teach you about why it was your parents had to leave and why you're welcome back, right? To to patria, um, they would tell me has regresado del destierro. I don't know, Andrea. How do you say destierro? From destierro is one they throw you out of your country. El destierro. I'm sorry. I'm having a little difficult. No. But for your, listeners, I thought of like
1: you- expelled or like
0: yes exile. Know?
1: Exile. there we go.
0: Thank you, Andrea, uh-huh. being <laughs> exiled. See, because you and I are neither the aquí that yes. so we have to sometimes uh, figure out in translation. Mm-hmm. I, I bet you do what I do. I, when I speak in Spanish, I am just translating, mm-hmm. translating, because English is my first language. But anyways, that's my first forward. Then I kind of give up politics. I get married. I have a beautiful daughter, Mayra. Abaja. I watch this old house. And then there was a man named Harold Washington. He was a congressman. He ran for mayor. And he won the Democratic primary in 1983. And I said, whoa. I said, the brother won. I voted for him. I just voted for him because I said, I thought it would be cool. I'm just sharing with I thought it would be cool. I was like 30 years old. I said, it'd be cool to have a black dude as mayor of the city of Chicago. Let's, you know, let's change. I think that's a good change. Tells you a little bit about how I think of the world, right? And I think that's a good change. So I voted for him. Then after he won the primary, the whole Democratic Party establishment, Andrea, every white elected official just about in the Democratic Party, including congressmen that were his colleagues in the House of Representatives, went with the Republican Party. Under the theme, we have to stop Harold Washington before it's too late. I said, that's such bullshit before it's too late. So I got involved, best thing I ever did, he was, uh, he helped me. Uh, I ran for public office in 1984. I got a whopping 24.8% of the vote. I like to say that I'm like a boxer, right? I'm 37 and one, right? And my first defeat was my first fight. After that, I've gone 37 <laughs> knockouts <laughs> since then. Um, that's uh, kind of my analogy, but I did have that first loss. It taught me a lot. Two years later, with the help of the man, Carol Washington, He expanded the city council. We went to court. It's always interesting, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund got this Puerto Rican elected (laughs) to uh, the Chicago City Council because they sued the city and they were triumphant, right? And they had to create new seats. And that gave me an opportunity to run for public office. Again, because I was ridiculed and laughed at and demeaned for being different, I wanted to make sure that my legacy in Congress would be the defense of those people that were different, uh, that were newcomers, right, that many times are rejected. Obama, after he did the the Dreamers and couldn't pass comprehensive immigration reform in 2014, he signed something called DAPA. There's DACA for the Dreamers, and then there was DAPA. And DAPA said, look, if you have American-born children, and you're undocumented, I'm gonna give you a work permit. I'm gonna let you get a work permit because I don't wanna separate you from those American citizen children who are part of our nation and our country. Okay, so I take Luisito because I want Luisito to understand politics and power because I think it's very important that Latinos understand power so they're not afraid of it, intimidated by it, and they know how to challenge it. So I took him to see the president. And Obama was very, very nice. because You know, he's really a lot taller than when he looks on TV. He's really tall. Especially I'm 5'6", so maybe anybody over 6 feet seems tall, but he's a pretty tall guy. And so he sees Luis Andres, and he says, young man, come here. And I take him over. He says, so what you doing? He says, I'm here with my grandpa. Oh, I see that. He said, I want to tell you one thing, Mr. President. And I was like, oh, shit. You know, what's he going to say? He's 10 years old, right? What's he going to say? And he says, I want to thank you because now my I have tios and tias that won't be deported. Wow. The grandson of a congressman being brought to an activity to show power. And what does he thank the president for? Because now he has tias and tios. So you see, even though Luis Andres is part of the 1% with two college educated parents and Relative, very well-to-do grandparents who give him everything he needs as our only grandchild. because I always tell him, you're my favorite grandson. He says, Grandpa, but I'm your only one. And so you can imagine, he lives good, right? And yet, what's he, what's he think about? He has tias and tios that can be deported. Because he lives that mixed life, right, between legality and those that have to hide from the government. He lives
1: that life. So I've been trying something new. Ariel, my producer, gave me this great idea to call this segment La Esquinita, The Corner. This will be a work in progress, but I'll be sharing some of my thoughts of the week. My thoughts are probably not very unique this week in what has felt like the longest election week ever After social media and the news being all about mobilizing people to go out and vote, everything now is about waiting for the remaining votes to be counted. It has been quite a long journey. (laughs) It's also weird, because for a full two days, it seems like nothing else is important in the world. It's like there's a standstill. The news doesn't even report other news, but the elections. Interesting feeling. But the wait is almost over, and we'll have answers soon, and all that built-up anxiety and elections fatigue will be replaced by our regular programming of everything else. (laughs) If I can, I'm going to try taking a day off, not looking at my phone, going for a long walk, and talking about it with my family. Oh, and of course, some chocolate caliente con pan dulce for the soul. I saw that you were able to, you did a lot of jobs. Like you were a child abuse caseworker and I mean, a variety of other things. What would you say was the job that had much more of an impact in your future decisions? That wow. wasn't like a public office job.
0: There wasn't, yeah. The, well, I have to tell you that um, the job that I spent the most years doing with the longest hours was driving a cab. I learned one thing. People will say all kind of shit in the back of a cab, like you don't exist, like you're not there, like you're invisible. I mean, no, they they have these family dramas, especially couples that are that have like trouble in their relationship, and you know they left a the nice dinner, but you know now it's the end of the dinner, and they don't have to act really nice because their friends are not around the dinner table anymore. So now they're gonna have it out for whatever whatever was said at the dinner table, and then they sit in the back of their cab. Well, I'm not sleeping with you tonight. You're just gonna, I like, isn't that a lot of information for a cab driver sitting up in front? Um, Just the kinds of things people will say. And it also taught me that don't think that white is always right, right? And that people with money are always gonna do the right thing. Uh, because we have this tendency of looking at our community and say ah poor people they're always out to you know i'm always of those around me uh, it taught me that that wasn't the case i remember lots of uh very nicely dressed uh executives in downtown telling me i'll be right out of the bank just keep the meter running i'll be right out and like 15 minutes later andrea they ain't come back you know they stuck me with the fare. Uh, I remember this lady getting all bent out of shape. I picked her up at this gorgeous high-rise building. She came out toda elegante, and she said, take me to the American Medical Association building. I asked, no problem. I said, ah, she's good. The woman tip better than guys, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm not thinking of the pair. I'm thinking of the tip. And she, gets it, she goes, oh, my God, I don't have any cash. Look. And I said, calm down. It's okay. Why? Because I was trusting. She's white. She's rich. She's a woman. She's not going to screw me. She gave me a bad check. She actually wrote a check and gave it to me with a, she put a $3 tip on it. I was like, oh, you see, no, that isn't exactly the way. So don't judge people by the cover. People can be poor, uh, you know, and, and, or they can be rich, but don't. Because I remember a lot of like people, working class people who treated me really, really well and didn't rip me off, right? And gave me nice tips. were always encouraging me to do good. Conversely, I met a lot of nice white executives. One of them told me, you see, before I came to talk to you, because I thought maybe this was gonna be on Zoom, Andrea. So before, what did I do? I shaved. So there's this guy, he's in the cab, and he says, "Uh, so what you doing? And we talk. he says, you know, you're very smart. You're not gonna be a cab driver all your life. I can tell you you're gonna go places. But let me give you a little piece of advice. I said, "Whoa, thank you so much, sir." Because I'm thinking, "Hey, I'm gonna be nice. You know, he's gonna give me a tip. I'm not arguing with the guy." Sure, whatever recommendation you got will be warmly accepted, right? And then he says, "Okay, I'm gonna give you double the the ride. It's twenty dollars to the airport. I'm gonna make it forty. But you got to promise every day you will shave, because that's one thing you can do and you're you have under your control." I said, no problem. I'll shave. It. Of course, I, I spent lots of days I have not shaved. <laughs> but at that point, I was like, cool. So he did teach me, right? Number one, he gave me economic incentives, right? He doubled the thing. I've never had that happen to me before. And not only that, he gave me good advice. What, did, what was his advice? As poor as you are, there is stuff you can take care of. You can't comb your hair, you can't shave, you can't wash your clothes, right? You can do the best you can to, do, to look the best you can, right? Um, and that your, your situation doesn't have to totally define you. You can try to find ways out. Now, are there situations where that's just impossible because the poverty is so extreme? Yes, but it wasn't for me. And so to this day, I think when I'm gonna do something important, right? Like today we'll be talking to you and later on, you know, you and I will be doing other programs together. I shave. You've never seen me when I do the programs with you without shaving. So I don't know if that says a lot, but it was an interesting time driving. That's your such
1: cab. a great story. That is such a good story.
0: I always thought he would call me. He never did. Because he was young. Right. And he had to have seen me because 10 years later I was a member of Congress of the United States right and and all of my years in public service I always wish he would have called and said, "Hey, then I give you some good advice." <laughs> and he could and bless for him it might have made him laugh right because he said I wouldn't be a cab driver that I was destined for other things in my life and he would have seen but maybe he did and maybe he decided not to call)
1: What is the, one of the things, because I'm sure there's a lot, that you're most proud of throughout your career that you've been able to accomplish?
0: Well, first of all, there's 50,000 new citizens in the city of Chicago. When I left public office uh, a year and 10 months ago, you can't take that away, Andrea, right? They have power. They have influence, and they also have protection. Uh, so it's a legacy that you leave. Um, the legacy of fighting in the Congress of the United States, irrespective of if it was Obama, the president of my party, or Trump, or Bush, um, I was always, or even Clinton, because Lord in no, the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. amen. I know people can't see in your podcast that I'm signaling. <laughs> That's all I did, padre, espíritu santo, because sometimes we just have to bless and pray for shit because. Uh, Even, uh, you know, it was Clinton that took away Supplemental Social Security from legal immigrants in his uh, uh, Welfare Reform Act of 1996, which I voted against. Um, But so I've always had to struggle with this. And I would say that I have learned so much from the immigrant community, from going in the fields uh, to be with them. And I'm going to tell you two things about them. Number one, we got a you know, the Me Too movement. Um, sensational, great, needed, took too long to come about, but I'm happy it's here. Um, should make the world better uh, for women. But I think of the women that are in the field today, Andrea, in Texas or in California and across this who have no protections, they're undocumented, they have no protection. The foremen and the, and the owners abuse of them with their pay um, and abuse of them sexually, I know that happens. I've talked to them. Comprehensive immigration reform, people think, oh, that's about a working document. Well, for the hundreds of thousands of women, it's about being able to call 911 and being able to call the police and denounce the perpetrators um, of this violence against them, which I know goes on every day in meatpacking plants and in the fields across this country. So I say that because you, when you speak to them and you hear their stories of, of abuse, of terror, of rape, um, it, you're never the same. Um, you always have to fight to do something about it. So for everybody who thinks it's just about a green card, it's also about protecting a large swath of our community, number one. And number two, I hope that the left, the center, the right, right when we come together for comprehensive immigration reform, that we don't get stuck. We don't get stuck. Um, and what do I mean by that? I've always been for a pathway to citizenship. I've, I, I mean, my, my position has always been the broadest position possible. Um, but we also have to stop the deportations. And we also have to take measures to put them in a safe place. It's like if you, if, Andrea if I saw you and I was driving, right, and your car broke down, um, i pull over and i try to start your car and i try to fix it. And if I couldn't, what would I do? I'd take you to somewhere safe. I wouldn't just say, well, sorry, and move on. We need to put the undocumented community in a safe place where they can no longer be deported, where they can raise their children, where they don't have to live this constant pesadilla because it is a nightmare for them to live with this uncertainty in their lives. So I hope that we all get together, put them in a safe place, because eventually, and because there was this man, he came to me, and he said, Luis, I wanna thank you because you wanna make me a citizen. I wanna thank you because you want me to get paid the way you get paid. I wanna thank you because you want me to have health care the way you have health care. I-, I wanna thank you because you always fight for my equality for it to be, as you always say, Luis, as good or better than what you have. And I want to thank you for that. And then he had three little kids, three little boys. He said, but Luis, just remember one thing. My priority is raising these three young men and staying married to this wonderful woman. So I love all of those things you're fighting for. Don't get me wrong. But you know what I need? Yo no necesito un maldito papel. <laughs> Alguien? que no me permita ser deportado. So I wanted to share those couple of things about, let's always not think about what we want, what we need as American citizens, with the safety that we live in. Let's think about what they need, what they want, right? Because it's their voices and their future.
1: If you follow me on Instagram, at here. you might have already seen that I recommend books. So I thought of giving you my recommendation of the week here on books, or any other cool stuff I might come across. This week, like I've mentioned, it's been pretty tough, anxiety-filled, tense, and more. So I looked for something soothing to listen to, and this came up in conversation. Have you tried the app Calm? I'm in no way sponsoring them, so this is 100% real. You might not be the kind of person who likes falling asleep with a soothing voice in the background, but after downloading this app, I discovered that I am one of those people. (laughs) There's a sleep segment with Matthew McConaughey, puts you right to sleep with his Texas accent. There's also morning meditations or relaxing music to put in the background. Anyway, not this revolutionary find, But who doesn't need a little relaxing nowadays?
0: The fact is, there's structural racism in the United States, and the pandemic is revealing it to us. Um, And it's also structural racism and the way we live as Latinos, the way we live, the way we choose to live in many cases. Andrea, I just moved to Puerto Rico a year, a little more than a year ago. This is where I want to spend the last chapter of my life. Rebuilding, a lot of people think sun and beach. Yeah, there's that. I want to rebuild this island after Hurricane Maria. I want to leave it a better place and I want to use my energy and my focus to get that done. But um, my house in Puerto Rico was a two flat. Three bedrooms on the first floor, three bedrooms on the second floor, okay. My daughter and my grandson and her husband lived on the first floor, and my college daughter, mom and dad, lived on the second floor. So let me see, that's one, two, three generations. And you know, Andrea, (laughs) there's not much different. I'm a member of Congress, and there were still three generations living in the same building. I mean, pandemics? Wow, that just complicates it when you have so many generations. I have my grandson going out con su noviazita. I got my daughter going to college. I got me going to work. I got my two. I mean, there's so many ways to bring it back to the house. And at least we had six bedrooms. Now, think of all those people in two bedrooms or in three bedrooms with la abuela, la tía, and six or seven kids and they're living there wow four generations maybe are living there so there's that that we have to understand but it's also structural 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 why because man today i read a report if you're young and you're latino you have 10 times more possibility of being affected by COVID-19, then you're white. If you're black and you're young, you have time time, five times more possibilities. Well, you know, part of that also is where we live and the poverty that we live in. Is there other parts that it's also about how we decide to live? Yeah, there's some of that. But it just goes to show you, so when this story is told and written about, Um, you're going to see the great suffering and sacrifice of Latinos that COVID-19 has caused. Because we're much more likely to get it, Andrea. It's just the truth. I don't want to fight with other people of color and say, we got this more than you do, right? But we do. And people should express it. And sometimes I just, you know, sometimes I wish Biden would just say it, right? Would just like speak to us a little more. He's doing better. He's in Puerto Rico, all over the place. He's immigrant, you know, he's doing better, but you know, I wish he would do a little bit better. I, you always wish for your candidate to do the best.
1: What advice would you give younger people that want to be in politics?
0: Hmm. If you want to be in politics, don't think necessarily about running for public office first. Look at your community. Wow, in the past months, you could have been involved in the census. And by being involved in the census, you could have created growth and power to your community. And at the same time, you could have met a lot of interesting people who were working the census with you. Um, We're going to do immigration reform. Andrea, we're going to do it. And when we do it, oh my God, all those vultures are going to come out to try to rip out our community, right? And to to give them bad advice. Get ready, get ready for that. Help somebody become a citizen. Help somebody uh, learn their English so they could become a citizen. Give them power, right? There's food banks, people are hungry. Join one, there's joy. Everybody today, not everybody, too many people today wanna jump right into it. Everybody ain't AOC okay okay she's very unique person i applaud her i congratulate her in the gutierrez household my daughters they were like delirious what she won because they you know two young latinas right they look at her and they go that's us (laughs) right she's us and um anyway my point to you is uh get ready if you want to be involved in public office by working in your community at healthcare care centers. Um, call up right now and you're gonna find immigrant protection and refugee protection groups in your neighborhood, you can find them. Guess what they need, they need your help. They need your help to learn, to run the phone banks, to learn, and as you get to know those people, you will get to know other people who are involved in politics too. So it's kind of a twofer, right? You get to do good public service and at the same time meet other people that have. And remember, If you want to run for public office, run. Don't be afraid, right? But don't think that the system's going to be structured for you. When I ran for public office, I drove a cab. And with the money I made driving a cab, I bought my literature. I paid for my rent because nobody was going to sponsor Luis Gutierrez, right? So look, sponsor yourself, right? Make an investment in yourself. Somebody's not going to come along and just give you stuff right Um, and if you look at some of the really good stories of human development and human success they invested in themselves you can do it i tell my daughter jessica every day i have a conversation you know what i tell her you are enough you are enough you're smart enough you're independent enough you're enough i tell her that every day so i say to all the latinos look at yourselves Regardless of what society is saying about you, regardless of what your mom and dad or your deal and the people that have put you down, you are enough. Do it. Knock on doors.
1: And shave Rub your face.
0: Run it. Run it. <laughs> you, you have nothing to lose except the opportunity to change. Do you really want to look back on your life and say, I stood on the sidelines right. while there was all these things happening around me? or did I want to be a molder of change, right? A molder of the future. And when you're 66 and you know you don't get to mold, you know there's not a lot of ex- expectations that you're gonna mold very much. Right. All you think about is, darn it, I could have done more. Mm-hmm. Remember, everybody, watch Sindler's List. Watch Sindler's List. And what does Sindler regret at the end of the movie? That he didn't save more juice. That he didn't use his money, to save more people. Watch Schindler's List, and watch the end. Watch that story. You'll never think of the Holocaust quite the same way. Again, it will have a profound um, impact on you. And watch what Schindler. He's the good guy. And in right. the end, he's kind of like he's kind of like I screwed up. I didn't do enough. Don't be a person that when you get older go. I, I didn't do one. enough.
1: So, guys, as I always say, make sure to support your communities. It doesn't matter what you choose to advocate for. Just go out there and help, connect, and inspire others to do the same. Thank you for listening and supporting Latinx. We've loved seeing the growth and engagement on our platforms. Remember to check out additional information about this episode in the description. Lastly, support us by downloading our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can stay up to date. And join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinx. Reach out and let me know what's important to you. I'd love to hear what you have to say.